Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Just a couple of notes before we get started with this week's show. Remind you guys to check out our website, hazardground.com. All of our sponsors are listed there, especially our Amazon sponsorship. That's been going really, really well. You know what to do. Click on the Sponsors tab or scroll down to the bottom of the homepage. Click on that Amazon button there and do all your normal Amazon shopping as you normally would. We'll get a percentage of what you spend and we'll donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground so you could help out veterans and military members across the country without even having to get off of your couch. It's a great thing. So stay with us on that Amazon promotion. Also highlight one sponsor for this week's show, GORUCK, uh, a fantastic organization that this week's guest is affiliated with. So check out GORUCK. Another great veteran-run, veteran-owned company that has apparel, footwear, and more. And they are giving back to veterans everywhere. A fantastic company. One final note before we get to this week's guest. As we get set to release this week's episode, it's October 7th. And for those of you who don't pay attention to the calendar, October 7th, 2001, was the date that we started the invasion of Afghanistan. And since then... It has been 18 years, 18 long, hard-fought, tiresome, emotional years. Uh, The Afghanistan war is old enough to go to college. It's old enough to vote. I mean, it's been driving a car for a couple of years now. I mean, we have been at war for 18 years. This is the longest period of war in our nation's history. And I begin to think about all the Vietnam vets that we've interviewed on this podcast, and I begin to think about how long and arduous that was. And if you would have told anybody back then that they were going to be at war for 10 plus years, they would have told you were crazy. And hence all the reason why they wanted to get out of Vietnam. And there was such civil outcry about and protests about being in Vietnam. And here we are 18 years in Afghanistan. And I'm not sure if there's any end in sight for this. And I don't exactly know what that end looks like. I do know militarily Afghanistan was a decisive victory. Now, as far as the nation building aspect of things, there's a argument to be made that we have lost that. Uh, We're still trying to win it. And whatever your political persuasions are and whatever you feel, I do know this much. There are still soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan today. And I want you to think about those soldiers who are still deployed away from their loved ones and their families. And moreover, I want you to think about their families and the sacrifice that they have made. So I want to say a special thank you to all the family members of those who are still deployed. And thank you for your sacrifice. And thank you for allowing your family to be part of this great nation and defending this great nation and all that it stands for. We can't forget you guys as the family members. You're a big portion and a big part of why soldiers, Marines, airmen, uh, sailors are able to do what they do because you guys are always there to back us up. And however long this war in Afghanistan lasts, however long we are a nation at war, we continue to thank you, the families, for being part of the service and sacrifice that our service members make to this nation. Now onto this week's episode. Joining us this week is another member of the story of Black Hawk Down. 
He is a former Army sergeant who was a ranger on the mission. He was part of the combat search and recovery team that fought through the entire Battle of Mogadishu overnight into the following day. He is also affiliated with GoRuck.com. He is John Bellman joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. John, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. It is great to be here. Okay, uh, as you know, we've told this story several times before, and you know, for the audience again, some of the names you know: Matt Eversman, Mike Durant, uh, Jeff Struker, Brad Thomas, uh, Lee Van Arsdale. So we've heard, heard this story from several different avenues, and as I, I told you before we started taping, that. Every time I talk to somebody, I learn something new about this story that I didn't know. So you were on the search and recovery mission after Cliff Wolcott's chopper went down. That was the first chopper to go down, correct? Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. Yes. But before we get into the battle itself, let's go back to the beginning. How and why did you get in the military? So this is a, so I had uh, what I what I kind of looked have, have talked about as having an early midlife crisis. Of course, it was the it was it was a it was great that it happened. But I had gone. I'd already been, I was kind of. Uh, a different cat coming in. I'd already gone to college and I had had a scholarship to go to grad school to be, of all things, a history professor. So uh, after about uh, six or eight months of, of that grad school academia and seeing what it really was like, I just realized that wasn't for me. And it was about the time that the Gulf War was heating up. And I thought to myself, you know, I've really kind of grown up in a, with a pretty privileged background, grew up in D.C., dad was a lawyer. Uh, you know, went to the school where all the po- private school where all the politicians' kids went. So, I, I'd had it pretty easy, and I hadn't really done anything uh, for my country. And I felt like, well, as opposed to just coming out of college and leaving grad school and then sort of bumming around or attending bar or something, I should, you know, do something of significance. So, I had met a couple of people who had been in the Ranger Regiment before. And what I wanted to do is go into something special operations related that I could get into uh, on my first enlistment. Uh, so the Rangers were a great fit for those two reasons. Uh, when I went to the I went to the recruiter, they had a sort of a joint service recruiting station and the Army guys were out to lunch and the Navy guy pulls me in and shows me a SEAL video. Uh, but, uh, I, I, uh, I, I sort of had my heart set on being a ranger, uh, and, um, you know, to, to, to everyone's initial shock, I went and did that and, um, joined in the, joined up in December of 90 and they had a delayed entry program, went into the military formally in in March of 91. Uh, and then, you know, went through basic airborne school RIP at the time, Ranger indoctrination program. It's now RASP, but then it was called RIP. Uh, went through that in August, no, July, and then uh, reported to 3rd Ranger Battalion Bravo Company in August of 1991. Let me ask you, what was it about the Rangers that intrigued you the most? I think that, um, well, I, I, I certainly had read up on Ranger history, and again, had, having met a couple of guys who had been in the Ranger Regiment, that was a big influence. From a practical standpoint as well, I thought, you know, hey, if I'm going to go do something that's challenging and hard, one thing that's good about the Rangers is if you don't make it for whatever reason and you at least end up, you potentially go to the 82nd or you can go into the infantry somewhere. And that there was a fallback position that was still relatively challenging concern with the, uh, with, 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 with the seals, for example, for me was, okay, if I don't, if you don't make it through buds or what something happens, you get injured, whatever, then you're kind of out in the fleet and nothing against people who make the Navy a career. They're, they're all, you know, all, all wonderful folks, but 
that just wasn't going to be my jam. So I saw the Rangers as a way of going into the army and infantry and attempt to do the, you know, the hardest thing there. But then there were also other things that were uh, available in the, in the event that I didn't, didn't make it mainly. I wasn't that I was going to thought I might quit. It was just that, you know, Hey, if I break my leg or something and rip and I get bounced out into the regular army, at least I'm in the regular army and not, you know, in the infantry and not in a situation where I'm doing a job I really just didn't want to do when I, when I, when I came into the military. You know, the more I do this and the more I talk to people about, you know, how and why they got enlisted, I feel like the dumbest person who ever signed up for the army. Like I did, I'm, I'm in the pre nine 11 world, right? So I did ROTC because it was a way to pay for college. Like, right. but you know, my, my, my stepfather was in Vietnam. My grandfather was in world war two. So I, I knew, you know, I had some military history in my family, but I never bothered to research anything. Like I just did what they told me to do. Like I didn't even think that I was just going through ROTC. And eventually I remember I picked my branch as an officer because I thought that that's where I was going to be stationed my entire career. I didn't realize when I chose ordinance back in the day and I was at Aberdeen Proving Ground because I wanted to stay close in the Northeast. I'm like, oh, OK, so I'll, I'll, I'll go ordinance because it's close to New York where I grew up. And I didn't know I had to leave after that. Like I was such an idiot. I had no idea literally what I was doing. I'm so amazed by people who actually thought like, I want to go see what this Ranger thing is all about. I can remember, however, John, while I was on while I was at Fort Hood on active duty. And again, all this is pride on 9-11. I kept driving past a special forces sign and I didn't know what it was. And I saw it and I said, boy, that looks interesting. Boy, that looks cool. Like, what is that? And they never, never bothered to call. Now the sweet mm-hmm. irony, the sweet irony of the military is my first deployment in 05 and 06, I got attached to the special forces and I'm like, damn, oh, there you go. boy, if I would have known this as a second lieutenant, I would have chosen an entirely different path and an entirely different career. Uh, but uh-huh. you know, I, I always tell people the army has a knack of putting you where you're supposed to be. So, uh, yeah. it all worked out for me. But I do yeah. feel like the biggest dummy for, you know, I, I didn't bother to research anything when I got into the army. So I, I assume that going into ranger school, you were prepared for the whole thing. Yes. So I, uh, so the way that the Ranger Regiment, uh, works, uh, is that everybody, if you, if you, if, if you volunteer for, um, the Ranger Regiment, the way it works, if you can let, if you're coming direct in from, from out and just enlisting from the civilian world is you can get a contract at the time it was an 11 X or 11 X-ray contract. I, it may be option 49. I don't know what they call it now, but at any rate, you basically are volunteering to go to the in the army, then you're volunteering to go to airborne school. You're going, you're volunteering to go through RIP, and with that contract, you get a con. You, at the, and RASP today, you get a, a guaranteed slot if you make it through airborne school to at least attempt the selection to go into the Ranger Regiment. You also are volunteering to go to Ranger School. How and and while the Ranger Regiment sends pretty much everybody goes to Ranger School because Ranger School is an army and actually all service school. While we had a lot of ranger school slots. It, ranger school is not set up to be purely a selection phase of the ranger regiment. So it's an army school. So we got a lot of slots, but there weren't enough to send everybody before they actually got to the unit. So you would have some time in the unit prior to going into ranger school. Typically the ranger regiment sending PFC. I was at a specialist E4 because of my college degree. Uh, it's a whole nother story, but, um, I, uh, but usually the, you'll see a ranger sent the ranger regiment sending PFCs to ranger school alongside more senior NCOs, say E5s, E6s from, and then officers, second lieutenants, uh, from the rest of the army. So we're sending very young guys to go through ranger school. That's part of our pipeline, but it just doesn't occur prior to arrival of the unit simply because of the way that ranger school 
uh, is set up and what its, its overall intent is relative to what the Ranger Regiment um, is, uh, does. All right. So you graduate Ranger School with Yeah. I graduated in November of 1992. Okay. Um, and, and yeah. And, and your then, first duty station is where? Fort Benning. Okay. So I was assigned to Fort Benning. Uh, yeah. So there's three, there are three Ranger battalions, third Ranger battalion, along with the uh, regimental headquarters of uh, the 75th Ranger Regiment are at Fort Benning. Okay. Right. That's in beautiful Columbus, Georgia. Yes. Uh, know it well. Um, yeah. Okay. So. Less than a year, you guys are in Somalia. What's happening in the lead-up time to Somalia for you? So, um, and actually, I have a, I have a, per, a, a interesting Ranger School story that ties in with Somalia okay. that then goes to lead up. So, maybe I should back up and then go forward. Does that work? Sure. For you? Okay. So, at any rate, so we when I show up to Ranger School, the way that worked at the time was that um, you would send a company, each company would send its cl- its cohort of folks all together as a company. So that changed and it was, I'm not really sure why they did it, but we all went. So every company would send people to Ranger School every three months, if that makes sense. So we had a bunch of guys from Bravo Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion, go through pre-Ranger together. So that included Brad Thomas uh, and and pretty much, uh, you know, everybody of that vintage who was, just, who was ready to go to Ranger School at that time. So we go through pre-Ranger which the Ranger Regiment has has its own training. It's three weeks of, of pre-selection to go through Ranger School in preparation for Ranger School, so very well prepared to do that. But we show up uh, at Ranger School, and then we all get divided into different platoons, spread out within different platoons and companies at Ranger School. In the platoon that I was assigned to, uh, Dominic Pilla, who uh, uh, was obviously known for the in the Black Hawk Down situation, as we'll as we'll get to later. Uh, was he also was uh, in my same platoon, and there were two guys uh, named Norm Hooten and Brad Holling who also showed up, and we and Norm ended up being assigned my range to be my ranger buddy, and Brad ended up uh, being uh, 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 Dominic's uh, ranger buddy, and then of course a year later. Those guys had shown up to Ranger School from Delta Force, uh, which, uh, you know, it was sort of mind-boggling for us that guys would come, senior NCOs from that unit would come back through Ranger School and go through that beating. Uh, but they did, and we were basically, they were our Ranger buddies. And, you know, of course, a year later, they were from C Squadron, so they, they, they just, by luck and happenstance, are one of nine companies in, in the Ranger Regiment, and they're uh, one of three, or maybe now it's more, but three squadrons uh, uh, and Delta, it happened to be C Squadron and Bravo Company, Third Ranger Battalion together, and we all the four of us were reunited. And of course, um, you that's know, insane, was, yeah, isn't it? And the Dominic was the first uh, KIA, and um, and then Brad was. This is a story that's not shown in the in the movie uh, Black Hawk Down, but um, the helicopter that Randy uh, Shugart and Gary Gordon were on that went into the second crash site isn't the second actually helicopter to be hit, but the second one that went down uh, in the city uh, piloted by Mike Durant. Um, there was a third sniper on that helicopter uh, with, with Shugart and Gordon. And that was Brad Holling and Brad had taken over uh, the, one of the mini guns because the crew chief had been wounded. So he had taken over the mini gun to help provide fire support from the air for Shugart and Gordon. Uh, in in the course of doing that, that helicopter as well was hit with an RPG and took Brad's took Brad lower half of Brad's leg off, and then it ended up limping its way back to 
the airfield and fortunately was able to at least crash land there and then not in the city. But so you have Brad wow. and Dominic. Brad loses, you know, a good part of his leg and Dominic loses his life. And Norm and I come out without a scratch. And and uh, as we get into the story, Norm and I actually end up connecting later in the battle. Uh, he was part of the assault force and I was on the CSAR team. We ended up sort of, you know, linking up in, in, in an interesting way, too. Uh, I don't know if you want me to share that story now, or we'll wait till we get to well, it. Let's, so let's wait till we get there. I just I don't want the audience okay. to yeah, lose I, don't, I, don't I mean, I know. I mean, I know it, and a lot of military people know the background. But for the, for the civilians okay. listening, you know, you, we we don't want to leave any parts out. We'll, we'll get to it. Okay. That's okay. but that is. Really I mean, cool. you know, uh, on one hand, it's serendipitous that so many people you went to ranger school with and trained with you go to battle with because it's usually never that way, especially when it's exactly. different units from different places falling in on each other that you don't end up with people, you know, and you, you need some time to, to at least get to know the people, let alone know how they fight their tactics and everything else. So, um, but on the other hand, that, that serendipity turned into misfortune. So uh, we'll, we'll get there in a moment, but what are you, okay. what are you doing in your lead up to Mogadishu at Fort Benning? Okay. So we, so I graduate ranger school in sort of late 92. We then do a deployment to Thailand, training deployments to Thailand and Korea, I think, or Korea and then Thailand. Well, that sounds um, like a real hoot. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Well, Thailand, yeah both were hoots <laughs> in each in their own way. But so it's, uh, yeah, so we, uh, so we were doing our regular training routine. And then, um, there's a, uh, the, I think early summer we start, you know, hearing about Somalia in general. And there may, I'm, I know that there was planning going on at higher levels. We just weren't aware of it, but we were sort of following what was going on in, with, 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 with Muhammad Adid and the rest of it. And we actually would joke about it, um, you know, because we just didn't really imagine we'd ever really go there. Um, and so, we didn't really. We really didn't have any specific, um, you know, engagement with the whole thing until we went on to what's called Ranger Ready Force One. So we were on RRF One, and that's sort of each battalion rotates its readiness. So that's when we're on two-hour recall, um, and we, as in conjunction with that, and I have my memory if my memory is right. Or in conjunction with that, we had a major training exercise in Fort Bliss, Texas. Okay. That's, so, that sounds accurate based off what other people have told me. Not that I was yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't remember how the RRF one, we may have been coming off of it or something, but we, uh, but either way we had this major, and this is a big deal, right? They bring in all, it, all the big iron JSOC stuff of the old days with, you know, the, the air, all the aircraft and all the helicopters. And, you know, it's, it's this massive exercise mm-hmm. with doing, you know, airfield seizure and all these missions, follow on missions and everything else. So it's a, it's a major training exercise. So, you know, we go out to Bliss and we do this, and then suddenly we get alerted to, hey, we're going to Fort Bragg. And they're trying to make this seem like, oh, it's an EDRI, which is sort of a no-notice training exercise. But I'm thinking, well, that's that's going to be garbage because nobody puts this much money into what is pretty much the capstone training event for the Joint Special Operations Community to have us, you know, then just go off to Fort Bragg and do something different. It just doesn't make any sense. So I was thinking this is a real world deal. So we, they take Bravo company and we fly off to, uh, to, to Bragg and we're initially set up at this, one of these sort of isolation facilities, um, uh, on Bragg, don't even know where it was. And we're sort of there staging out of there. And then we end up going and training at the Delta compound, start doing preparations for, for the mission itself. Uh, and then, um, 
we then they call it off and then they send us back to Fort Bliss to finish up with this big exercise. And almost as soon as we land, we're pivoting around back to Bragg and then over to Mogadishu. So, you know, it was pretty much a zero to 60 in terms of specific preparation for Mogadishu, which I think in retrospect certainly had an impact on some of our areas of of uh, where we were probably less effective in some things relates to that, particularly with with vehicle convoys and and doing that stuff because that's not something we did in the Ranger Regiment at all, really, right. uh, uh, as a part of our normal course of duties back in those days. Well, and other folks have told me, as you know, we recount many people from Black Hawk Down have been on the podcast, but. Right. It must have been frustrating that there was a sense we stay and we go and we stay and we go. And I mean, oh. you know, the start stop, it's got to at some point, it's just got to wear on you mentally a little bit. It, it, that, that's absolutely the case. So and especially in those days where I mean, it, it's hard for I think it may be hard for the listeners to to the audience to really remember if they were old enough or if they weren't adults at that time to understand what is it like to be in almost a truly post-war military and national mindset environment because that's what the night, that was what, even though we just fought the Gulf War and we've been to Panama, Panama was a relatively small action. The Gulf War was sort of perceived as this walkthrough event that really was, was no casualties. And there were casualties, but it was perceived, you know, by the country and the rest of the militaries, you know what, we went and did this and we won overwhelmingly. Now we're out and the Soviet Union's defeated and it's all peacekeeping maybe and it's peace dividend, and it's a peacetime army. And for us, the, just even the notion of, okay, there's a combat opportunity here, was we're all like, it's like the Super Bowl, and we're all jazzed up. No, no we're none of us is smart enough to know, careful what you wish for. Um, some of the, you know, some of the older uh, Delta guys were, but still, we were, we were super amped, super excited, and then... And, for, you know, scared, too, but it was this, you know, huge emotional lift and intensity. And then to have it called off, that was just a, that was just I mean, I, I remember actually I remember talking to Norm Hooten about it. Uh, and he was like, hey, man, sometimes these things, you know, you, this happens, you get spun up and spun on. Spun. And we had been and we had been spun up before for other things that I think were real world, world missions, but they had never really progressed to the point that this one had where we were really literally ready to go. Uh, and then it gets it gets canceled, and we're back to oh, we're going to go do training in Fort Bliss. That sounds great, you know. Right. Let's go do a raid. That sounds exciting. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, so we uh, so we uh, so so. But then we we come back, and then suddenly to turn right back around and go, you know, that's so, that was just so new, and which which I think that happened. You know, since those kinds of things happen, the, the missions and op tempo and, and and all the rest of it, that's a routine occurrence. But for us, this was all new. And and so a roller coaster emotionally. So you land in Mogadishu August of of ninety three, correct? Yeah, I think it was like twenty fifth or twenty sixth, something like that. Yeah, May twenty seventh. Yeah. All right. So what is your specific mission when you get there? Okay, so uh, I was on a combat search and rescue team. So that was, and we'd started training up. We formed this team at Fort Bragg the first trip there uh, in the train up. And it consisted of seven Rangers uh, and all senior NCOs. I was the second. We had a couple of E three fives, and the lowest guy was a tab D four. So we'd had very senior Rangers on that team, uh, and so I was an individual contributor on it. And then we had five guys from Delta, a couple of senior sergeant majors, a captain, 
an EOD guy and a, uh, and a, and a, and a special forces medic. And then we also had the, the, the people who really were the foundation of the team pulling it together, fighting for us to have even our own aircraft were the Air Force pararescue men, not uh, Tim Wilkinson, Scott Fales. And uh, they were phenomenal in that. And then uh, we also had an Air Force combat controller, Pat Rogers, with us as well. So a team of 15. And our mission was, from the jump, uh, respond to any kind of issue with an aircraft, whether in the worst case scenario has happened in Mogadishu, an aircraft gets shot down and we're in combat to an aircraft crashes somewhere and we're isolated from the rest of the rest of the task force uh, or just something routine maintenance and an aircraft just has to land somewhere and just needs to be secured while they get the get the bird up and running. So really, it was a dedicated search, you know, search and rescue mission uh, from the jump. How many times did you have to go out prior to the Black Hawk Down mission on October 3rd? So we, so it, it's kind of funny. We went, it, the short answer is we flew every single mission plus mission, the, uh, what, what we call profile flights where the, we would, the uh, task force would fly helicopters, even if there wasn't a mission going on, simply to keep the, try to at least keep the Somalis off balance as to when we were actually doing a hit. But we flew every one of those, and so even the profile flights, the guys who were actually the assault force and the blocking force, those guys would stay at home in the hangar, and they would just fly pretty much empty helicopters or whatever, maybe with a few people in it. But we flew uh, every time the full team. So we did, so but basically we we did not go in on the ground at all until October third. There were two times where we had almosts. I can't remember which happened first, but I'll just describe each one of them. One was there was we hit a target. The task force hit a target that was too large for the uh, for the, the Delta assaulters to clear by themselves, and so there was a, a there was a there was a thought of not just on that mission, but then going forward to put the CSAR team in on the ground as a as a supplementary force to those guys. And I can tell you when I heard about that, you know, the next day or there, whatever, I was like, man, that'd be awesome. But to the credit of our senior leaders, one was a, one of the Delta Sergeant Majors had been on a helicopter in Grenada that had been shot down. And he was like, nope, not going to do it. And the PJs, Tim and, and Scott, uh, were were also, you know, adamant about we are not going to put a seat, you know, because once you put the CSAR team in on the ground, you've lost that search and rescue capability. So we... Uh, we rangers and I think some of the other, I mean, the Delta guys were, were, uh, the captain and, and some of the other guys were pretty, except for that one Sergeant Major were pretty, you know, like a little disappointed also, cause we were all excited to be part of the assault. We've been awesome to be part of the assaulting and do you know, room clearing and all the rest of it, um, be part of the mission, but it didn't happen. And then the other time where we almost did something prior to October 3rd was, um, the, I want to say this was September 25th. Fifth or sixth, somewhere around, it was like a week or two before, week, week and a half before, a 10th Mountain helicopter, I believe, was shot down. It was 10th Mountain, it, or it might have been attached from the 101st, but it was a, it was another helicopter, eyes over, eyes over Mogadishu, maybe, it was their, their, their kind of reconnaissance flight they were doing, and it got shot down in the city, and we got our team kitted up and ready to go, and then we got stood down. Uh, we were at the time, uh, very disappointed by that, thinking, oh, why aren't they letting us go and all the rest of it. But I think what I've read and heard since they already had, they were close enough uh, to be recovered by the, um, 
by the uh, their own Tenth Mountain the forces. Tenth Mountain folks, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I believe, and so is, and I think that was a pretty significant firefight to get to that to that location, but. And, or it may have been that they just couldn't put a helicopter in there. I'm not really sure. But the bottom line is that was, the that was again, another one of these close but no cigar situations. So up until October 3rd, we really had not done anything other than train on our own and fly around. All right. Well, for all intents and purposes. Yeah. So let me ask you. You guys are flying on a routine basis. Uh, you've already mm-hmm. heard about a helicopter getting shot down. Clearly, and again, for those who aren't military who don't really know and grasp this whole story, the two helicopters getting shot down is exactly what – made this mission or made this this uh, battle so noteworthy because of everything that ensued after it. Were you yes. guys not ever shot at? Were, were you not aware of the capabilities? Were you not like really cognizant of how capable the Somalis were at taking one of these helicopters out of the sky? So I would say that the short answer is no, we were not aware. We were not I think we 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 just the the idea of helicopters actually that the Somalis presented a real threat and something we really just didn't it was right in front of us and we weren't paying attention like any, everybody else. We on the CSAR team were very much attuned to what the world was going to be like if a helicopter did get shot down. I mean, did any any RPG ever get fired at you while you're in the air, or you were too high for that? I was well. I was stuffed in the middle. We were probably too high okay. as a CSAR team because we weren't really part of. We weren't pri- providing overhead. We were providing aerial cover or anything right. like okay. that for the assaulters. We we didn't have snipers on our plane on our plane on our helicopter. Um, but we were very aware of the of the severity of what would happen if a helicopter went down. But I mean, it, in theory, but I think everybody in the task force was sort of that, what's the, you know, the quote, big sky, little bullet. I mean, I think there was really not a real appreciation of the mounting, uh, which was proven in retrospect by, you know, evaluation says there was mounting volumes of the RPG fire into the air on these missions. And I just think that there were, that was just not something, you know, it's just kind of human nature where there's something that's really significant. You know, can somebody fly planes in the Twin Towers? Oh, sure, it's the, it's theoretically possible, and maybe it really is possible, but ah, it's not really going to happen, right? Or we'll, right, we'll figure sure. out a way around. That's kind of like the way we were. It's sort of, well, you know, we could take these risk A, risk B, risk C, but we have these mitigating um, approach things we can do, and we can be in and out faster, or we can fly a different way or whatever, but then when you start stacking up the number of potential things that can go wrong and you've got a situation where you're everyone's biased toward making it happen, type A personalities, even your risk mitigation plans end up end up kind of falling apart. Okay. And I think that kind of happened to us across on a variety of fronts. All right. So to that end, uh, you wake up on the morning of October 3rd. Is it a yep. norm, is it a normal day? Take me through how you're particular. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I don't I, I have I'm pretty pretty bad about remembering true like a lot of narrative detail on these kinds of things but i do remember i do think it was just a normal day uh you know if it, it, it you know weren't i don't think we had any real we didn't have any training scheduled that day that i remember per se uh so i my real recollection of when we started getting spun up and things that are snapshots in my mind um you know that 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 you know as we got, we got spun up, we got on the helicopters. I do remember the first the first time I felt like oh this is this is really different. Yeah, it was a daytime mission, which was a little different. But what really resonated with me, as I remember it, as we stopped, um, 
off for the for the little where we stopped on the way out and while we was land we would sort of like we're loitering because the little birds had to put rockets and their little bird gunships had to put had to load rockets which they had not if i remember correctly hadn't done before um and so that was a little at least that felt that that felt uh, significant to me uh and i do remember that and then us flying and going from there when you heard the plan you know, the assault force, the blocking force, uh, you know, uh, the Rangers rope down to the ground. You have the Delta guys mm-hmm. landing on the roof. Did any of this seem out of place? Did anything in, in the plan make you go, oh, well, I don't know if that's going to work? No, because really that had been the, the – so, so the thing is that's the template. So really this wasn't a situation where you were making a new plan. I mean, there's pros and cons to this, right, as we, as you see. But, I mean, there's – this was not a situation where you're making – a different plan for each one of these missions. They were template because the, the cycle time is so tight between target and and execution that you're using the same basic idea, right? You're going to block, mm-hmm. you're going to cordon off the, 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 target, the target area. Yep. The, uh, the, the assault force is going to hit it some way from the top or the bottom or both. You know, there may be differences in whether you're going to fast. And in the city, we were fast roping. But, you know, for the little birds, maybe they're going to rope in or they're going to land on a building. Um, you know, there may be differences in how many Blackhawks you'll use with snipers to provide covering fire. There may be new, you know, there may be a little few changes here or there, but it's basically the same idea when you're using the helicopters to do the mission, which, again, just, you know, it allows you to go faster and make things make things happen. On the other hand, it, you know, it's you're showing the same hand every time. So sure. pros and cons there. All right. So when the mission actually kicks off, um, are you in the air when it, I mean, tell me how the yes. whole thing starts for you. So, so do you get I'm, up in the air before actually anybody else leaves the main force leaves. No, we're, okay. we, we, so we all take off. So the CSAR helicopter takes off with all the rest of the Blackhawks. They all okay. take off at the same time, pretty much in effect. Right. And so we're flying around. Um, so are we and the, the, uh, sort of the command C2 birds, the command and control helicopter, we're just flying around. Right. And I don't, I'm stuffed in the middle of, I was not the one of the lucky ones to sit in the door. I was stuffed in the middle of, of, uh, of super six, eight. And so I can only see glimpses of things, you know, out either window or either door, I should say, but I don't have really great visibility. I'm more like saying, okay, well, the lower half of my body is falling, is falling asleep, but I can't feel anything. So that's, <laughs> that's pretty much my day. And then obviously the first, well, the first thing I do remember hearing is something around somebody had been injured, whether it was specifically Blackburn fell off the rope or whatever, but there have been maybe a couple people been injured and then the big one being, okay, there's a helicopter's been shot down. And that was just sort of, that's when, you know. And nobody, the, did uh, anybody in your bird see Cliff Wolcott? That's the first helicopter. He was the pilot of the first helicopter that went down. Did anybody see that bird get shot? Uh, I, it, you I don't, don't know. Not that I know of. Okay. Don't know. Don't know. I just think because you, um, you literally had like a 30,000 foot view almost of this whole thing, at least from well, where your chopper I, was, I right? I say that. I say, okay, so I, when I say flying around, I don't know what the, what the racetracks were that they were flying or where, how high we were. I mean, gotcha, I know we okay. were, I think, higher than the helicopters doing the – because I do – that actually does remind me. I do remember seeing um, – Seeing some of the 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 black hawk the uh, blackhawks or the snipers on, I'm thinking, man, they're flying pretty low and slow. And that was, but then again, that's the first time I had seen that, and they had been doing it before. But this, because this was a daytime operation, that's the first time I really had caught a glimpse of it. 
um, and had it. And then, uh, so I was in a point, I could have, I guess that means I could have been in a position to even to see the helicopter get hit, Wilcott's get hit, but I didn't, I, d- I didn't, and I don't know that anybody else did. If okay. we were, I don't know where we were when it actually happened in terms of position to, to, so to see or not. After Walcott's bird goes down, what do you guys do? Are you just staying static at this point? I mean, as far so as your get, mission. So we get the call, right? So it wasn't, I don't remember it being Blackhawk down per se, but then obviously it's, it's something helicopter's been shot down. You know, everyone's sort of, you know. Uh, uh, the, the energy level is picked up. I'm, I'm sitting there making sure two things. One, that my aim point scope is turned on and that I have my fast rope gloves. We're, like, because <laughs> we had these big, thick leather, I don't know if they don't have them today, I guess, but that, I'm not sure if they use them, but they had big, thick leather gloves to hold the fast rope. And man, if you just forget, if you ever, you know, get too excited and forget and try to go down the rope with your bare hands, that's not going to be a good day. So I had those two things and then just thinking about, okay, what do I got to do when I hit the ground? And, uh, oh shit, this really happened. And, 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 uh, wait, really? And that was kind of what my, that was about as much thinking as I had to do. Uh, because then we were just getting time acts on how, you know, like, like, you know, how many minutes out we were okay. from, from, from so the insertion point. You're going to the first down helicopter. Yep. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. When you, when you get there, what happens next? So we hit, so we, 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 we fly in, hit the ropes. By the way, how Everyone's long did it take, in, in, in your mind, how long did it take you to get before you got it to the ropes? It felt like a couple minutes. Just a couple minutes? It, okay. It felt like forever, but it was, I think, probably a couple of minutes. Because uh, they had to get it, – it's not that we were too far, but even knowing, getting, vectoring the pilot into where – hey, okay, where do you go now? And how do I get there? So it, it, it might have been more simply because oh, – well, there's rest of the story. There was a, that little bird uh, that landed and picked up a few of the guys who had been on, on the crash um, before we got there. And they were gone by the time we got there. But my sense of like how long all this really took is pretty hazy. When we got there, we all fast drove down. It's complete brownout. Um and either it was me or maybe Tim or a couple of maybe a couple other guys who were some of the last people off the helicopter. I don't think anyone knows to this day uh, were on the ropes when our helicopter got hit with an RPG also. So uh, if you've ever seen the video, if anyone's ever seen the video that's not on the Internet of the battle, you can actually see our helicopter coming in. You can see it get hit and you can see the, the pilot lift up. Uh, um, Dan Gelato lifts up. And is about ready to, to 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 take off, and then the crew chief tells him, "No, we still got guys on the ropes." And so he stays in the hover. They let us off, and they, they make sure we're off. Cut the ropes, and then he flies back to the airfield. So it was a great, you know. Had he not done that, uh, and not been that the and, and the crew chief, they had been such a great team of uh, pilots and crew chief. We'd have been. You know, hanging on the end of a fast rope, but you know, <laughs> hoping that we don't fall off flying over Mogadishu, or worse, they'd have cut the ropes and we'd have fallen on the ground. Oh Jesus! So right. it's, so we so we were very lucky. Didn't know, and I didn't know any of that had happened until I got back to the hangar. So your so, so. your feet hit the ground, and your yep. first thought is what? Uh, I can't see anything, and um, got to kind of link up with, make sure that I've got you know, link up with the rest of the team. So did that. Uh, another guy on our team named another this becomes sort of a legendary ranger uh, in later years, Rob Phipps uh, and I uh, bust into this courtyard. We clear a couple rooms. There's some women in some of the rooms. There's nobody with any weapons. Bust back out in the court, out of the courtyard. And we're kind of making our way up the street following the, the rest of the team 
to get to where the crash site was. And so, and there's still a lot of brown out and sand in the air. So you're not really seeing a lot of, you know, sort of outlines and buildings. And I'm had initially not hearing the volume of fire because of the, just the noise from the helicopter. But then you start hearing there's a lot of shooting going on. Uh, and then I remember rounding the corner uh, because the helicopter had crashed in this in this tight alleyway, and rounding the corner and seeing our one of our PJs, Scott Fails, was bleeding from his leg. At least this is how I remember it. And in my mind, I'm like, "Oh, did he cut himself on the crash?" <laughs> I realized he'd been shot. So that was the first sort of like aha moment. That wait a minute, okay, this is uh, this is actually a really, really not only is it serious because the helicopter got shot down. But it's serious that we are taking an enormous amount of fire right away, and this is going to be a uh, a very challenging situation. At, at this point, do you have any knowledge of Dominic Pilla being killed? No. Okay. No. So, I mean, do do we even know at this point if Jeff Struker's Humvees are headed back to base? Do you have any idea of that at, at this point? No, okay. none, none. In fact, I can't tell you for sure. Now, who I knew was had had been killed, other than the people who were the bodies that we had directly with us, and maybe Jamie Smith. Which bodies were? Which so you, the bodies of of um, Cliff Walcott, Donovan okay. Briley. You, you mean the, the, the guys in the yeah. the, the, the yes, guys in the, in the chopper? Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, that's. I just wanted to make sure I, I was tracking everything yes, else that was yes, going on. Okay, yeah. so I found out a lot about who got who was killed after I got back at the end of the mission. Okay, so uh, you're taking heavy fire. Do, do, mm-hmm. Can you see targets? Do you recognize where it's coming from? What are you doing now? Um. So initially, so when I get to the crash, initially I'm helping Tim Wilkinson and others pull bodies out of the actual wreck and then set up these Kevlar, the Kevlar mats in the bottom of the blind. It's sort of on the floors of the Blackhawks that were really designed against to stop shrapnel and not much more. Anyway, we set them up as, uh, as sort of to provide cover kind of in front of us at the, at the point that I end up setting up at, which is at the, if you think about the helicopter being sort of, you know, crashed in this alleyway. There's, we're defending from the front of it and the back of it. And I'm on the side of it that where we had come in from, from this four way intersection, we had come down, I believe from the North and come down and turn the corner. And I stayed sort of right in front of the helicopter right there. And the rest of the team is sort of surrounding it mainly on either side of it. Um, and so I'm initially helping get, bodies out and then we started to take more wounded so dealing with that and then then very there shortly thereafter um taking up a position sitting on a body uh because i couldn't get observe observe it was so tight in there and i couldn't get any observation at the uh, i need to see over a rise in the in in the street uh that alleyway down sort of out in our front i couldn't see over it so i had to get up a little higher so i basically was sitting there shooting at targets and and just, you know, hoping not to get hit myself uh, for a good period once we had kind of done the initial extraction of getting bodies out of the helicopter. And then from there, it was it was it was sort of defending in place and it, while also assisting movement of casualties and bodies into an adjacent courtyard that uh, had been sort of the wall had been knocked down by the helicopter and so we, that, that allowed us access to a series of rooms 
that uh, once night hit, we were able to kind of hole up in there while also leaving some a few people out in defensive positions around the helicopter. But that initial period there was just shooting and 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 I mean I was through my I mean it feels like I maybe my time maybe it's maybe too fast, but it feels like I was through my initial basic load of two hundred and ten rounds. You know, maybe in the first half hour, it feels <laughs> um, like that. Now, maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm overstating that, but it certainly feels like I know that I I, I, got, they, I was replenishing magazines from what were in the helicopter or guys who were wounded or and that's where I was getting. I was resupplying on ammo very quickly. Okay, um, two things. One, how long does it take? Um, and for those who know the movie and the scene well, Matt Eversman, the guys who are moving on foot to that crash site, how long does it take him to get there? Do you have a concept of this time? So those guys, so this is, so I should say that the, the, um, the, the, the ground, the, the blocking forces from the, from the initial mission got to the helicopter, the helicopter crash before we did. Okay, they were there. They were already there. Okay. They already were coming. They had just got there, I think. And so with me, I had, I did now, Matt, I, I know his story in the movie. They kind of, you know, they bastardized a lot a of things yeah. and he was the first one to tell you that, but he, uh, his, I didn't see him. I did see, um, I was more with Tom DiDomaso's team, okay. uh, and, and those folks, his chalk was there with us. There were other folks who were also around us that I didn't see. They were just in adjacent buildings that were not connected to ours. Um, but, it was we had some of the the uh, the blocking forces. Some of those guys were already there uh, before we got there. Okay, and at what point in all this volume of fire does the first thought creep into your head? I'm probably not going to get out of this alive. Very very soon, very quickly. How and why? We, we, so I would say probably within. Tw- it feels like 20 minutes of us actually being because we started to have a lot of people getting wounded. So we had, I think half our guys were wounded. We'd fortunately had no one killed on our CSAR team. Half our guys, I think were wounded and in one way, shape or form. And, uh, I mean, there were just, I mean, there were bullets all over the place. I mean, in front of me, around me go, I mean, just hitting everywhere on the walls, the guy next to me, uh, our CCT guy got hit in the shoulder and we just sort of turned, it was a grazing wound, but we kind of, he didn't even notice it and just started looked at it and just started laughing because it was like, Oh shit, you're wounded too. I mean, it's, it was that, that it was, it was almost as, and I, and I mean, this is a sort of get, it gets into later in the battle, but the at, at, at nightfall. So I moved into the, to, to these, these adjacent sort of uh, compound of, of small rooms. Uh, and there was a guy, um, John Waddell, who was a member of the chalk, uh, sorry, the, one of the blocking force chalks, uh, and he took a position behind that same Kevlar mat I was talking about that I had been sitting behind. And he said when he took a look at it, it looked like it was Swiss cheese except where my outline was, that the, the bullets had been going through it. <laughs> and, you know, of course, that maybe says I, I'm intelligent, but I didn't really have any other alternative. There wasn't any, really anything else to be behind there. Uh, given where we were, but basically there was that level of of fire, and so I did pretty much feel like you know what I just mental. I was like, uh, just continue to try to focus on what I need to do, but the chances of us getting out of here are pretty slim. And I felt that way all the way until the next day. It wasn't that I, I didn't have a feeling of hopelessness or giving up, but I just it was almost like a rational, logical 
thought, as odd as that may seem. Like, you know, well, it's uh, one of those things. Our, our odds are pretty low right now. Right. When you see other people starting to get hit, you have to question. It's only a matter of time before it happens to me. Yeah. Like, I'm not special like, in this in right. this combat. No, like, there's nothing out right. there that's going to save me more than anybody else. Exactly. And also knowing, uh, particularly later on, just just what I knew to be or what I understood to be our you know, what were the capabilities that were available to get us out? I mean, the idea that they could pull the UN together to come help out with this uh, seemed unlikely. And so my feeling was, you know, we're going to have to end up carrying these guys out, our wounded. We have too many wounded to carry. And if you're going to do that on foot on in, in daylight, uh, that's going to be impossible. Or, or earlier on, the period that we're talking about, uh, you know, we're going to run out of ammo at some point and get overrun. Right. Um, so, so as guys yeah. start to get hit and start to fall, I mean, like, is how do you deal with guys who are going down, guys who are your friends, people you know, uh, in the same respect, trying to keep yourself alive, trying to do what the mission requirements are? I mean, it seems like there, there's a lot of multitasking mentally and physically going on. Yeah, it absolutely is the case, and I and I mean, I guess I, I I'm. I was sort of fortunate in that context where I pretty quickly stopped having any kind of emotional response to things. And was just, you know, the whole cliche, you kind of get into your training or what, what task needs to happen next. And that's kind of how I, I managed that. It wasn't that, you know, that that was just how, that was how I, my, my, my sort of personal makeup reacted to that situation. So it was pretty much very much, even if there were guys who were getting wounded. Now, like I said, there, nobody I knew at the site where I was physically was killed in front of me. Okay. There were some pretty bad wounds, but nobody was killed or dying that I personally saw. I saw bodies of people who had been killed in the crash, but I didn't have to deal with a friend being killed right sure, next yeah. to me. Which, and again, that's an entirely different realm. It is. I mean, it and is. Mark it Bowden, is. by the way, who was also a guest on the podcast, you know, in, uh-huh. his, in his book – uh, he tells the story of of uh, Jamie Smith who who died just due to loss mm-hmm. of blood and and being you know getting shot in the femoral artery and they just couldn't keep him alive. You know his sort of expiring um, is not only gut wrenching but it's it's told eloquently to a point where uh, when you read the book you'll be in tears. I mean he he yeah. just he does it with perfection for those who weren't there and couldn't be there to experience it live. You felt like you were there and reading that whole thing. Yeah, no, it's and that that I've 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 you know read and heard that story too, and it's just uh, it is heart wrenching. So I didn't, you know, uh, luckily enough, I didn't have to 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 experience that. Okay, so as nightfall comes and and you guys are starting to hunker down inside those buildings around the chopper, um, mm-hmm. you know, you got you you're, you're keeping wounded people alive and treating casualties. You know, the the, the fire does start to die down uh, a little bit at night, but. As night falls, what sort of emotions are starting to set in? So um, I think there's that, first of all, there's that real feel of total exhaustion. Because the, the adrenaline goes I away, had, right? <laughs> yeah, which is the only time I'd felt that way previously. I mean, I, we had done very hard training missions when I was in, you know, as part of the Ranger Edge, but the only time I'd felt that real sense of deep exhaustion was was from was in Ranger School, where just because of the lack of sleep and food over days and days and days, that gets you to to that feeling. And so that was, it was just that adrenaline being gone. was just like this huge. And then there was kind of this waiting and not knowing, are we going to get out? There was some, obviously there's, there's a, there's part of our team is working to extract 
Uh, at one point, uh, obviously, uh, the body of Cliff Wolf- Walcott. Uh, there's not a real awareness. I didn't have a real awareness of what the what, what rescue plan options there were. So there's a sense of okay, you know, can, are we going to how are we going to get out of here? What are we going to do? do? Should we shouldn't we be trying to leave at night if we're going to have to go out on foot? So I didn't have an appreciation until much later that there was an actual convoy coming to get us. And um, so, you know, the night spent with little birds doing gun runs and rocket, you know, know, mini guns and rockets, the brass, all like they have in the movie, brass falling on your head. Uh, There were a few amusing and and, uh, (laughs) in retrospect, it could have been pretty frightening moments, but at one point – I'm sitting on this bench and Rob Phipps, who had been wounded in the leg, was standing and I didn't know he'd been wounded. We're sitting there talking and I'm like, oh, wait, man, you're wounded. Why don't you sit? And we just start laughing because I just hadn't noticed. And so I was being that guy taking the seat on the bus while the uh, the old lady stands, so to speak. Um, but uh, there was that. And then at one point, and we still don't really know what this was, but there's a fly- we're in this court. I'm in this sitting in this courtyard, a couple other guys, and there's a uh, – couple of rooms across the courtyard and then to the right and then there's a door out to an alleyway and there's a light that goes off in the room across from us and we go in and we clear it thought we'd already cleared it before no one was in there nothing so later on that night um i talked about norm hooten being my ranger buddy he comes through with his team um through the through the courtyard doors that we are, uh, that, 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 uh, you know, that we're adjacent to the alleyway. And he comes in, he's like, hey, where's Bellman? Comes give me a big hug, goes into, goes out and goes through to another position. But then later on, he tells me that they were looking at our courtyard and weren't sure if we were, um, if it was friendly or enemy in that courtyard. And he was about to, he, he and his team were considering firing a 203 round at the courtyard doors <laughs> to breach it literally. And uh, he had added a ranger saw gunner and said, Hey Sergeant, I think I saw a tack light go off to one of our lights. So, and Norm was, you know, pretty seasoned dude. He probably would have looked for more indicators to be hundred percent sure that we weren't friendly, but that was the indicator. And, and that, and of course he goes, okay, so now I know. We're, and, and then he made up, we linked up with him, but it was like that we were that close someone on his team firing a 203 round that would have hit me because I was wow. right. You know, so yeah. So go figure, go figure. Let me share a nugget with you, whether you know, whether you know it or not, I don't know, but Jeff Strucker told me this, um, the convoy that was looking for you, AKA the lost convoy. Right. Um, and, and you mentioned how you guys had not done a ton of convoy operations because you're infantrymen, you do everything on foot, but yeah. he had told me the reason the convoy got lost was simply because he was the lead driver on the lead vehicle for every yes. other convoy, and he was the only one who knew the route. And yes. because he had yes. brought Blackburn back to base, nobody else knew the route, and that's the reason the convoy yes. got lost. Yes, and I there's a there's another book that's come out that's very very good uh, on this whole thing. And I the first time I heard that was reading that book. Really? <laughs> uh, yes, it's it's outstanding. It really is. It's uh, it, it's a great 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 account of the battle in full detail but i'd heard that and then i guess larry moore's had also been out on the convoys when he was the he was stroker's platoon leader and he was out on a water run when the mission kicked off so so basically with that's and i had never known that that they didn't one of the key issues is they didn't have you know the people who knew where they were going 
so that was a big so then they had to rely on obviously direction from from the you know the, uh, the c2 bird c2 birds and what and all the other different reconnaissance or whatever but then that's and then also the other thing is that that, that, that you know i've learned since is that not only was the was was jeff's absent a key the absence key factor also there were at times two convoys in the city at the same time, and they weren't sure which was which, which was which, <laughs> which was talking to whom. So you get a direction, and it's like, is that for me or for the other person? I mean, does it amaze you that all those years after the battle, there were still things that you didn't know that went on? It is absolutely crazy. And also, the other thing I've really learned in the years since is about what about about how about how memory works or doesn't work. In the sense that there are things that okay, I'll give you an example about me. I that in my case, I I would have told you with a hundred percent confidence that we did not use Mark nineteen grenade automated grenade launchers on the vehicles because we had concerns about um, collateral damage civilians. Now I don't know where I heard that. And remember, I was not remember because I was I you know been around some of the guys. I mean, I'd seen the Humvees and stuff like that, but I'd never really been on the missions before, so it wasn't like I was in one of those vehicles and knew. But I would have I somehow I'd heard that or thought it, and that became part of my memory. And until I read that book and then confirmed it with people, I didn't. I was like, wait a minute, we actually had Mark 19s. Like, oh yeah, yeah, they were there. Yeah, of course we did. Why would we be worried about a Mark 19 if we're using 50 cals? So, I mean, it was kind of this sort of odd idea that got implanted that I somehow I got it became a memory of mine. So it's interesting when you think about all these you know, situations, whether it's combat or anything else, what do people remember? What is the value of eyewitness? What, what are details that get missed? What are the things that sort of stick in your mind and don't? And, and, and it's just, it was very, it's, it's very, just, I learned something every time I talk to somebody and it's been, you know, now it's been more than 25, almost more than, almost 20, almost 30 years. years. Yeah. Coming up oh, here. Yeah. 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 So it was, yeah. So we're, so I, I keep learning stuff and I, I, I've learned more about how people remember things too, as the, as, as time progresses on this, even something you think is significant is, Hey, this is, you know, the, probably the most, significant event in people's lives other than having a kid or something like that, right? Or some other major, but this is like a big, big deal for most of the people who are there. And it's just the fact that you can have, you know, vagaries of memory or not, you know, and it just, it, it's just really, it's an interesting thing. I just keep learning, you know, more and more about this battle as the, as the years go. Okay. So sun is starting to come up. Uh, you've yes. made it through the night. You've survived the night. And mm-hmm. as the sun gets up, obviously the fighting starts again and you know, you have to get your adrenaline ramped up one more time. I mean, what are you thinking when the sun gets up? Do, do you feel like, okay, now we're going to get out of here kind of deal? I'm feeling more hopeful. Um, uh, and, and the, the volume of fire had seemed like it kept going the whole night, but that I was inside, so I wasn't taking the direct brunt of it. So at any rate, we we get ready to pick up and go. We spent time before it got light loading wounded onto and bodies onto or into these um, Malaysian armored personnel carriers. And so we're getting ready to leave. And I was part of when so the sun comes up. I'm part of the guy when some one of the guys running alongside these vehicles. And so. You know, we're out, we're all running along. These Malaysian uh, vehicles are firing, their guns are elevated 45 degrees and they're firing constantly. 
So wasn't sure what, if they were firing at anything, but they were, <laughs> they were shooting. Yeah, they were fire, They were those bullets are going to come down somewhere. So the point was they were they were the guns were elevated, but they were shooting. Um, and so we start to run out. Little birds are doing gun runs. RPGs are going off the whole bit, and. We run for a while, and eventually we link up with more vehicles. And I think there was a pack Pakistani tanks because I remember a Pakistani tank taking a shot, knocking part of a building down. We get to this area where there are more vehicles that we can get into, and the, I get in the back of a tenth mountain Humvee. Oh, and uh, by the way, I ran out of ammo on the run out. So uh, this one guy, one Delta guy, uh, John Boswell throws me a magazine while I'm crossing this alleyway. So at least I had one magazine, but that was gone pretty quick. Um, and then, uh, get jump in the back of this Humvee, you know, along with uh, a couple other guys, one or two other guys from our CSAR team. And we are driving out, right? So it's whole bit, lots of fire RPGs going off every which way. And suddenly or somehow, Three of our vehicles, so, so my Humvee that I was on and two others, get split off from the main convoy and lost. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so we're driving on our own, and we end up going back. We make it back to the airfield, whereas the rest of the convoy goes to the Pakistani stadium. We go right to the, we go to the airfield. So we, we're like, okay, what else can go wrong? So we get, <laughs> we get off at kind of the, 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 the far end of the airfield away from the hangar and start walking down the track back toward the hangar. And then we hear this shout out, Hey, we got to go back out. We lost one of our Humvees there. They, they got lost too. And I'm like, Oh shit. Okay. So I was like, I don't have any ammo. I don't know if there's any ammo on this. Ve- there's no ammo on this vehicle or if there were, we weren't, we didn't get any from these guys. So we're going to go back out again. Awesome. So start jogging back up to the vehicle. And by the time we get there, they say, Oh no, those guys made it to the old port, which was another safe location. So we're good. We don't have to go back out. And walked back down to the hangar, and there was, like, Colonel McKnight was at the hangar, and he greeted us there. And, you know, I'm, like, looking at his uniform and mine. It's, like, blood, you know, basically uniform covered in blood. And there's not a whole lot of other people in the hangar because most of the people are still at the Pakistani Stadium, if I'm remembering. And there were a lot of people wounded and, like, not even there anymore, like, either at the at the medical station there at uh, at, uh, that was near our compound or – or, or, you know, getting ready to get to be taken out of country or whatever else. But uh, it was, it was, uh, it was jarring coming back to a place that had been full of people and now is empty, almost. When do you start to learn about the names of the people who were killed? Right when I got back. So when I got back, I uh, first thing I did first thing I said, there was all this ammo and body armor and stuff stacked up. So I first, just first thing, autopilot is go get like reload, get all ammo, more ammo than I had, make sure I got everything because, you know, we still had people out, right? So there was still, you know, I, I mean, I don't know that we, I knew, I, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't that I knew that I knew that, you know, like specifically Mike Durant was still out, but basically I think we, we knew that there were still people in the city and had been, you know, not recovered, um, so got, re, you know, re-kitted up and then I started, then I came here and talked to it was Alan Barton, who's another guy on our team, and he had tears streaming down his face, and then he starts reciting the names of people who have been killed that I didn't know. And I think Pillow was one of them, Ruiz. Uh, I think almost everybody I didn't know other than maybe Jamie Smith. So I knew it had been really bad, and I know that there was a minimum of two helicopters that have been shot down. 
and didn't know at the time, as I later would find out, there were actually five of the eight Blackhawks were hit and disabled. It's just that only two of them crashed in the city. Um, and uh, but I but but I you know you just didn't really you kind of even though you knew it was pretty bad, just didn't have no idea just really how bad bad was. Right? Until Does it hit that. you at any point? Like, oh my god! Yeah. Like, what did we just that, do? I was like, yeah, I was like, I couldn't, yeah, I just like, I just, this, did this really happen? It was almost just, because again, it, it, it's our notion of what combat was, really, seriously. I mean, yeah, you read about Vietnam, there are a few guys, you know, in the Ranger Regiment at very senior levels have been in Vietnam, but that's like, I mean, that was so, that was just 25 years prior, right? So it wasn't something that was really resonant. Combat was the Gulf War or Panama. Right. Which was Panama was, you know, the people were killed in Panama, no doubt. There was, but that was friendly fire and or, you know, a, you know, random accidents like when the SEALs got killed and, you know, you know trying to get near Noriega's airplane. Those there were things that, you know, but it was so small and small numbers and not really a pitched battle that even our notion of what combat was going to be like would be running operations, doing a hit, capturing this guy, a deed and, you know, coming home. It wasn't. 50% casualties or whatever the number is. It wasn't, you know, five Blackhawks hit, two of them crashed, you know, vehicles turned into pretty much, it's like, you know, they've sent, I mean, they're there, it's like those vehicles are like scrap yards on wheels. Are you seeing guys get emotional? Yeah, well, I saw Barton was crying when I saw him, and I, I think I just did, I mean, I just was like in shock. I just, I couldn't, couldn't believe it. It was... And then I think a lot of us also, though, really did pivot to one thing that was – well, and then – so we have what happened when we came back to the hangar and then I think it was the next day, the 5th maybe or the 6th, 5th or 6th, where we get hit with a mortar. They had been mortaring us the whole time. They finally lucked out and dropped one right at the entrance of the hangar and that killed Matt Ryerson and severely wounded the uh, C-Squadron commander, Gary Harrell. And, and some other Rangers, too. So that was like another hit. Um, and, you know, so what what was sort of, I guess, helpful in a way, in an odd sort of way, is that we still had, you know, a mission that we were going to go out and get Durant. And so that was there. And then they, and then they brought in, you know, kind of reinforced another company of Rangers, another squadron from Delta, and then more helicopters. And then we were sort of in the mode of some of us would go home. There's talk of the CSAR team staying. Some guys wanted to, some didn't. I did. I understand why some wouldn't have wanted to, but I was like, you know, I'll stay. But that all kind of went away when they pulled the whole force out. But really, there was a, there was a, what I guess what I'm saying is the time to sit and reflect on what had happened really was pretty brief. And then, right. you know, you, you come back and, there was initially this idea, hey, we're going to put them back in the woods. They need to do that and you know, get them out back in the field again. And uh, they that that quickly got – that idea was countermanded and we got some time off. Uh, and then we, you know, we kind of came back and, and uh, not a whole lot of – there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, you know process, out processing and, you know, counseling or, 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 or understanding really at, uh, you know, after this simply because – I think, you know, we were one company in the entire Ranger Regiment and the nobody else really could connect with our experience. There's probably a little bit of like, I hate to say there's a little resentment and jealousy is why those guys get to go because they don't understand what it was really like. So, sure. 
um, but were this sort of isolated group of folks who had been through something that other than people who had been in Vietnam hadn't really been in. Was was there a time for you where the reflection and the emotion of the whole thing overcame you? Uh, I think that uh, it would have been after I got out and there are, you know, I, you know, I'm like, my wife will tell me I'm I'm like, she doesn't think I really show any emotion, but there are times where I do and have sense where it's, it could even just be, this is, I'm quoting Durant from the same thing he mentioned in one of his, in in a documentary he and I both were in, it was, you know, you hear a song or you have a moment, you watch a movie or something and it just all, you know, just kind of connects and there's this overwhelming emotional feeling, which I think is, you know, so it's not so much, do I have flashbacks or, or specific, you know, recollections of bad things that happen specifically, but it's more just, you know, that sort of emotional weight of the whole thing will come out and has come out kind of in certain ways that I can't explain. Right. So, sure. so when the call came that task force ranger was leaving, um, the president had pulled everybody out. Of course, you know, everybody knows the story of seeing the bodies being dragged through the streets of American service yeah. members, uh, which was horrific in and of itself. But uh, when when the president of the United States finds out it happens on TV, that's a, a really bad thing for the people involved in it. But he pulls the plug on the whole thing. Your reaction yeah. is what? I was at the time was really, really, really unhappy about that because I thought if it's you know what? The people who are running this show, if you're going to put in, send in, in a high, very high profile way, you know, the Joint Special Operations Command that's, that's sort of a national command asset and make a big profile, make a big show of going after this guy, and you then defeat him, he's suing for peace, and it was a hard-fought victory, and then you're just going to snatch defeat from the jaws of that victory and pull us out? What the hell were we doing there in the first place? So. That was I was really not I was really pissed and had, and was for years. I now I understand. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a huge Bill Clinton fan fan per se, but when you look, he was a relatively new president. He had been handed this mission. That whole Somalia engagement was from the Bush administration. Not criticizing. I'm just saying that's what it was. He's not familiar with how things are run. You know, he 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 is ultimately responsible. But at the end of the day, this was you know. He didn't get us in there this way that much, and 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 if he couldn't see an end in sight, what was the point of continuing on to 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 fight uh, in Mogadishu and and just have more of a more of a bloodbath there to 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 achieve what? Now the way they pulled out was 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 pretty bush league. I mean, no pun. It was just not. It was it was abrupt, and I think more political than considered the way I just described it. But at the end of the day. How long were we going to stay in Mogadishu, you know, and Somalia? I mean, it's we can see today that it's not exactly a place that uh, lends itself to uh, to uh, to uh, you know, kind of moderation and, right. and social development. And and it's a lot of the things that we've gotten ourselves into as a country, and as the you know the, the we we'd gone in there just to feed people before we task force ranger ever went there. We'd gone in. As a humanitarian, with a humanitarian objectives to basically, you know, prevent warlords from stealing food and restore famine situation, uh, restore, try to alleviate a famine, 
worked out deals with those warlords to say, hey, we're going to come in with overwhelming force, but we're also going to leave you alone if you let us do our jobs, and then we're out of here. Then we hand the keys over to the UN with some nation-building mandates, and you pull out all of our super-capable forces. The UN takes over with this nation-building mandate, so it's got much less capable forces with a much bigger mission that threatens the power base of all these warlords, and it's a mess. And that's how we got to where we got to, is that you know, they, that led to the, to the conflicts with the UN and then us showing up. But it was just not a situation where, you know, we're going to fix that whole country. And I think that if you're not going to fix the country, going after a deed a little bit more, probably not a good call. But I tell you, it felt terrible at the time, right? Uh, Colonel Lee Van Arsdale summed it up best, um, both in the History Channel documentary and on uh, the podcast that we had together. But, and I'm paraphrasing that. If you're going to choose to send men and women into combat, the person who makes that decision better have the same exact courage of those who fight in combat uh, to keep them there. And, and I think that's very succinctly and poignantly said about the yep. way we handle combat operations. Um, th- there's not a yeah. single person who puts on a uniform um, that's going to run from combat. But if you're going to send us there, you damn well better make sure you allow us and give us the ability to complete our jobs, do our mission and bring as many people home safely and alive uh, the way we know how, not under some sort of handcuffed jurisdiction or some political uh, sort of, you know, ideology that there is a, an alternate motive there. I mean, that's it's essentially what it boils down to. No, I agree 100 percent. And I think that where I see the, the resp- that res- that responsibility starts at, when you make the decision to go somewhere. Right. I mean, so in Somalia, great example of, hey, let's it felt like, hey, let's bring in, you know, the special operations guys and they can come in and arrest somebody in, you know, the Bakara market. And that'll solve our problem because the deed is a nuisance. And I just think that there was just a complete lack of appreciation of what the risks were with doing that. And um, I think that that was where whoever was whether it was the whoever was in charge then when, I mean, I don't mean Clinton obviously was, but somebody was making the decision that this is a good idea to do this. Uh, I think probably should have taken a step back and said, you know, if we're going to send general Garrison and his team to go do this, we better understand that this is a real combat mission. And if we're going to do it, we better sign up because it is, it is actually more. I got done saying why just got done saying why politically there may have been reasons to get out on the other hand, if you're going to make commitment to the to, to the men of that task force, you owe it to them to be willing to do the hard thing. And you have to be aware that if you pull out and run, what message are you sending? And we know what message that sent. That sent, uh, uh, you know, to bin Laden, like they say, kill a few Americans, we'll run away. Yep. So that's- that was what we – that's the lesson of Mogadishu or – enemies of the United States was that. And so, you know, by not standing strong, thinking you may be doing the the right political thing at the end of the day, there's a blowback effect. You can't even anticipate, which is your men don't believe in you and your enemy sees you as weak. And that's a bad, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's where we, we got ourselves into with that, with that sort of quick exit. John, did you ever read General Garrison's letter uh, to Congress and taking responsibility for the whole thing? And if yep. you did, what'd you think of it? I thought it was characteristic of the man. I mean, he took responsibility uh, and, and and owned it. And even if he, you know, wasn't responsible for everything, and he wasn't, he couldn't know. I mean, he he wasn't, and it, and it isn't that things that went wrong are not his fault. 
uh, and he was a phenomenal leader, and we all look at, looked up to him and uh, loved him. I didn't know him, but you see him every day going out for a run, saying, telling us to take out, take it, send an ambulance after him if he if, if we don't hear from him. I mean, that, <laughs> we just had that cigar. I mean, he was a great leader, and that's what leaders do: is that you know, hey, I was the man in charge, and this is my responsibility, and I made the decisions on the ground. Uh, that I did, and and I own that, and I think that that's 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 the you know to his credit and represents the highest traditions of of what we expect out of our leaders. John, it's you know over twenty six years later. Um, what stays with you the most about the Battle of Mogadishu? Um, I, I would say that the just the, the 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 friendships and connections of that experience with those people who went through that and then the experience of even how it became public afterwards and how it was originally something no one knew about and was forgotten and then blew up with this book and movie and then it's then it's impact in which with you know, with the stuff that I do with GoRuck today you see um you see the impact that that battle had on a whole generation of warfighters because the movie came out right when we right after September 11th happened. Sure, yeah, yeah. So the impact of that, the impact of learning from our mistakes, the 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 in some ways, not that it was an inspiration, but the fact that it it, it connected people with the realities of combat as we were going to fight wars that really did matter for our country. That's what that, and there's a feeling of responsibility to that because a lot of guys who fought in, in combat and had very hard and had fought in, in 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 battle since that are the same or there's the same you know intensity that Mogadishu was. They didn't have movies made out about that, so I feel a yeah. responsibility to those people. So whenever I get asked about this, I I I, I try to make a point of saying, you know what. I was, you know, I was, a, I was an E5 in the Ranger Regiment at a time of peacetime. Combat fell out of the sky and hit me in the head, and someone made a movie about it. It was significant, but there are people who have, you know, 15, 20 deployments running and gunning and have spent their entire military careers at war, and we should be thinking about those people and celebrating them, you know, as much as we talk about. Proud of Black Octave, proud of Mogadishu, proud of my service, but there's a bigger story here that involves many more people who have been you know, at this for a very long time at great cost to themselves and their families. You got out of the army shortly after less than two years after Black Hawk down. Why? Um, I, I peacetime army. Uh, I, I, uh, wasn't that I wanted to go back to Mogadishu for return tour. You know, I didn't want the sequel, but on the other hand, I'm just, I, I'm not a big, you know, I'm just, not suited well to kind of the army way of life in a lot of ways. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I boundaries and rules are uh, something that I understand the value, but just too much bureaucracy drives me crazy. And I think the peacetime army, even in the Ranger Regiment, just was not something I knew I could spend the rest of my life doing. So I really had, you know, two choices. I, I, I could re well, I was encouraged to re enlist to go be an officer because of my college background. Didn't really want to do that. I think that's great. Nothing against that. But I wanted to stay in the special operations community and the way I perceived officer careers as working back then, especially is that you had to leave. So I wanted to get out of the Ranger Regiment because I loved it. But it was just it's just a place for young men. And I wanted to go either to SF or try out for Delta selection. And, you know, whether I would have made I thought, okay, well, A, I have to get LASIK surgery on my own or something like it because I don't meet the vision requirements. And two, chances of making it are slim and 
do I really want to reenlist? Do I really have a passion for this? Especially in the nineties, because it seemed like we're just going to maybe do peacekeeping operations again and not really do, it's not really like a call, a national call to action. So, so I had to get out, go, uh, go, uh, try to make some money in the civilian world. And um, does it you know, bother you that six years later, you might've gotten that opportunity that you were lusting after at that time? Yes. Oh yeah, it sure did. I mean, I will never forget. I had gone back. I'd worked a couple different, couple different industries. had gone back to Michigan to get my MBA and I was sitting like walking into accounting class, you know, age 34, I think. Yeah, exactly. Just turned 34 Still, in, I was pretty good shape then, and I walk into accounting class. There's some rumblings about this. I'm like, holy shit, how do I get back in? And I know a lot of guys did that, even at my age. I had, I was now a, I was in a situation where I was, you know, in my first marriage, had three kids, and it was at the time, and it, it just, I just felt like, you know what, this just isn't going to be the right call for me. I just don't know how I make this happen. Um, and, and, but I definitely was like, if this had happened in 95, as opposed to 2001, I'd have stayed in, no doubt. You know, it's, it's funny. And I told this story a couple of times recently to people. I don't know if I ever actually said it on the podcast, but you know, I, I just hit 20 years in the military. And oh, by the way, I'm, I'm kind of like you in the sense that the peacetime active army kind of drives me nuts. Um, yeah. and so the national guard is great for me cause I get to date the army. I don't have to marry it. Um, yeah. so from that standpoint, the reserves is, is fantastic, but I, I keep telling my wife and I have kids at home as well that, you know, I, I realize my career is going to come to an end here sooner rather than later. And I kind of want to deploy one more time. And she's telling me I'm crazy. I'm like, I, I just kind of want the experience. You know, I know I'm not going to be able to do this ever again. And I right. want to get back in the big league, like one last run at a championship kind of deal. You know, I want one last right. run. Uh, at, at, at doing it again, just because when you look back on it, there is a sense of nostalgia and, and there's, you feel like there's more that you can do and accomplish, uh, than you did the first time around in combat. And to that end, I have this desire that's sort of pulling me and she keeps looking at me and goes, you're going to spend a weird year away from your kids. And I, and I know that sounds awful to say, but it's like, there's a part of me that just pulls me towards it going, get back in the fight. No, I hear you. It, it was dead, but it's definitely that whole feeling of the big war, the right war, the one I know that, you know, we can, there's a whole, plenty of shows to be done on, you know, the aftermath of, of, of uh, what Iraq and Afghanistan has brought us. Right. But, but, but at the same time, that was, those were the wars of, of our generation in a sense and missing that it still sits with me. You mentioned go ruck before. Uh, tell me yeah. what they are in your association with them. So it's for me. This is a side gig. Um, it's something. It, it, Go Ruck is a, a company founded by a guy named Jason McCarthy, who's a former Tenth Group Green Beret. Uh, had gotten out in uh, uh, I think so, oh eight, oh nine, something like that. Went back to grad school to get his MBA. He'd been to college before, uh, and he decided as a business to uh, start making these military grade sort of rucksack more like a laptop commuter bag but sort of made of very tough materials that you could use in a combat zone or or go into the office right so he may starts making these things and figures out that there's not a whole big audience for that particularly if you don't have a government contract uh and so he he settles upon the idea of doing endurance events based on special forces assessment selection sfas uh, as a way of generating interest and demand for these for these for these rucksacks, and the business takes off. So to the point now where 
um, go ruck runs, endurance events of different types uh, across the country and even a lot overseas. Uh, the people now who run those events, it's not all just Jason, it's people who are, you know, have been in the special operations community during their military careers or either currently serving or, or are out like me. Uh, and uh, we do them all over the country. And I came into this, uh, like I'm exposed to this, didn't know anything. I had a rucksack that I bought just coincidentally from them. But in 2016, I got invited to speak at a Mogadishu Mile themed event. So this is an event. So this is events that the events that they do in October, early October, are themed around the Battle of Mogadishu that we've just been talking about. So I come out and speak at this thing, meet to the meet the two guys who are the cadre who are, who are running it. Uh, one guy was a Green Beret, another guy was a former Israeli Special Forces guy, and they say, "Hey, you know, at the end of this, hey, you, you, you know, you really ought to, ought to, ought to come do this." So I went and participated as a as in a twelve hour, uh, the twelve hour version of the event, and uh, which really consists of um, carrying weight in your rucksacks, sandbags, logs, a lot of PT. Uh, and then there's just various events of different durations. And they also have events now where it's just pure rucking. Uh, but, uh, so no, no PT and no, and no logs or sandbags. But, uh, so I went and had to do one of the 12 hour version of that as a participant. And then I've been running these events since 20, so January, 2017. It's on awesome. the weekends. And yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it does require me to do traveling, which I like, but then I, then I I I, uh, I have to be careful with that on the home front because it means that I'm away a lot. And then for my for what I do for real work, I travel quite a bit too. So it's a but it's great. It's very rewarding to meet, particularly when you've been out a while. You get to 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 when if you're working with other guys, which doesn't always happen. You're meeting people who have you know they come from that same military culture and special operations community, and then also these participants who do the the events are very favorable to the military and they really there's a there's a big sort of element of bridging the gap between civilians and military which you know when we have an all-volunteer force there's a lot of people who don't even know anybody in the military or barely know anything about it so this is i think goruck does a very good job of building those connections through these endurance events have you gone to any of the reunions have you seen any of the guys since yes so i uh so i have i went to the 25th anniversary which was last year at fort bragg went to the 20th was at fort bragg and texas went to both um and uh i've been to so that's and then there was there have been other times i've been able to see a few guys either at the at, uh the third ranger battalion does the uh, mogadishu mile 5k every year so i've been to that seen some of the rangers there was it down at fort benning the uh the guy who was the um so the assault team leader, Scott uh, Miller, uh, for for C Squadron at the time in, in Mogadishu is now ended up being, you know, he was the JSOC commander is now leading in Afghanistan, the forces in Afghanistan. But he was a commander of Fort Benning uh, a couple in 2014 or 15, I can't remember which year it was, but he had, right before he was leaving, he had a bunch of us come down and he did a sort of an, an officer's professional development uh, class and had us all there to speak at that, um, at, uh, at the infantry school there. So that there was an opportunity. So I've been back. Yes. Yeah, several times. I mean, different venues, but the, the big ones have been the 20th, the 25th reunions. Well, John, again, thank you so much uh, for telling an amazing story and giving us your perspective on one of the most noted battles in all of military history. Thank you for your honesty. And certainly thank you for being part of the hazard ground. Hey man, thanks very much. It's been great being here. 
You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done, all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot HTM.